ओम भूर्भुवस्व परमेश्वराय विद्महे परतत्वाय धीमहि तन्नो ब्रह्मा प्रचोदयात् ओम May we know that supreme lord may we meditate on that highest reality may that brahman illumine us om shanti 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 hi peace 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 <clears throat> good morning today's topic is images of the divine <clears throat> now to define religion we might call it an approach to something greater than ourselves throughout history we have found people trying to approach that something sometimes they call it god sometimes they call it goddess sometimes they call it the divine or by any other name <clears throat> and the ways to approach this something is through ritual through acts of appeasement through acts of supplication through acts of adoration or through acts of celebration all of this is involved with this idea of religion this approach to the divine the attitude that people hold can be one of reverence for something greater than themselves or it can be some attitude of wonder or curiosity what is it what is the ultimate answer to life's questions <clears throat> and so we find that people who are on this approach to the divine no matter what their particular approach is it will fall broadly into one of two different groups <clears throat> one way is this approach through the heart which is called bhakti marga the path of devotion the other way is to approach through the head this is called the jnana marga the path of knowledge it is based on curiosity on the desire to know to understand the ultimate secrets of life and the universe <clears throat> now because we have the two paths very often there are these questions of partisanship that arise which path is better is the path of knowledge superior or is it the path of devotion and we'll find that there are some people who hold one or the other view but this is not the way it should be neither path is superior to the other the only superiority is the excellence that you bring to your own particular spiritual practice whatever that path may be that is the measure of excellence that is the measure of superiority now with the path of knowledge there is a seeking for identity i want to know that which is the ultimate reality of the universe which is my true being with the path of devotion there is a seeking for relationship so we have the idea of either identity or relationship but when you stop to consider both of these paths what are you talking about with the path of devotion you are talking about union with the divine beloved with the path of knowledge you are talking about establishing your identity with that greater something union identity in either case both culminate in this oneness this experience of absolute oneness <clears throat> and so in the end pure bhakti and pure jnana pure devotion and pure knowledge are one and the same thing 
In ancient times, there was a householder named Shaunaka. And at the beginning of the Mundaka Upanishad, he approaches the great seer Angiras. And he says to him, Sir, I would like to learn that knowledge by knowing which all else is known. What is that? And Angiras thinks, and he says, There are two kinds of knowledge, and both are to be known. One we call the lower knowledge, the other we call the higher knowledge. This lower knowledge is the knowledge of the scriptures. It is the Vedas, it is the recitation of the Vedas, the learning of the meters, the sounds, the rituals. All of that constitutes the lower knowledge. The higher knowledge is the direct experience of the supreme reality. So the lower knowledge is an indirect form of knowledge. It is a means by which we can cultivate and experience the higher knowledge. Also, the lower knowledge is learned, it is acquired. We cannot acquire the higher knowledge, the knowledge of who we truly are, for that is our birthright. That is within us already. It's merely a matter of uncovering it, realizing it, and knowing it. Put another way, we can say that this lower knowledge is mediate. There are means, methods, in between middlemen, between us and that which we seek. This knowledge is based on relativity. It functions within the realm of duality, which is this world of our experience. The higher knowledge is direct. It is unmediated. There is nothing between us and the true self. This is the knowledge of the absolute. This experience is the experience of non-duality, absolute oneness. Now, what is the divine? The Upanishads say that the divine is Brahman. And Brahman is this light of awareness. Uh, Another word for this in Sanskrit is prakasha, this shining forth. Consciousness, the divine, shines forth of its own accord by its own power. And it becomes the foundation of all of our experience. It is the light that illuminates everything else. So when we experience everything in this world, the sky, the earth, the trees, this temple, our bodies, ourselves, other people, all of this is knowable only because of that light of consciousness that is shining forth and illuminating all of that. If we were in an absolutely dark room without windows, we would have no idea where we were, what was in the room. We would know nothing. But you turn on the light, and then you see, oh, this is a room. It is so big. It contains these objects. The walls are painted this color. So everything that we know, everything that we experience, comes through this light of consciousness. And that is the reality. That is what uh, Shaunika was seeking. That is that knowledge by knowing which all else is known. Now, to borrow a phrase from Christian tradition, a very beautiful phrase, for now we see through a glass darkly. We do not have that full knowledge. We do not experience the divine in itself because the divine is nothing we can experience the way we can experience and know things in the world. So instead, what we have to do is to approach the divine indirectly. This divine knowledge that we seek, we approach through the lower knowledge, and particularly through the language of symbols. When we think we are approaching the divine, thinking about God, 
we are not, in fact, thinking about God because God is infinite and the mind is finite. How can this little mind contain that which has no boundaries? So, what is going on in our minds? We are approaching the infinite through the finite. We are approaching the reality through a number of symbols. We are approaching God through our idea of what God is, through our concept of what God is. But all of these concepts and ideas are still limitations, and we are seeking what they represent, what is in itself absolutely unlimited. <clears throat> now, in our life's experience, we think of all that we come across in this world, everything that happens to us, everything that we perceive, and we can boil the totality of our experience in the here and now to four different words. The first one is nama. The next one is rupa. The third one is guna. And the fourth one is a longer word, artha <clears throat> nama. Nama means name. Nama is a concept, an idea, an abstraction. It is subtle. This is the world at its subtle, non-material, mental level. <clears throat> Next there is rupa. Rupa is the physical embodiment of an idea. Rupa is something that has color and form, something that we can grasp, hold on to, touch. So nama and rupa, the concept and the physical object <clears throat> that um, <clears throat> it embodies, <clears throat> or that embodies it, and then we have this idea of guna, quality. Everything that we can think of, and even these thoughts, these concepts are objects, they're subtle objects. So everything that we can think of as a thought, experience as a physical object, has qualities. Light, darkness, heat, cold, heaviness, lightness, smoothness, smoothness roughness, and so on. And so there are all of these qualities. Some of them are abstract qualities that we find in the way we act and react. Anger, hatred, love, peace, joy. And some of them are these physical qualities that pertain to the objects in the world around us. <clears throat> but all of these are guna. So all of these impart some sort of quality. Now we come to this wonderful word, artakriyakaratwa. Artakriyakaratwa is the capacity in any object or actually within our mind, <clears throat> to derive meaning from anything that we encounter, anything that we experience. We all look at the same reality around us, and yet we interpret it in different ways. It means different things to every one of us. And this is that artakriyakaritwa. So this is the quality that imparts meaning to everything in our lives. And what happens once there is a meaning to something? As soon as we perceive a meaning in an object, in a person, in a situation, in an emotion, we react to it. And then once we have reacted, then we form a decision. Are we going to act in some way to it or not? So everything that we do is driven by this sense <clears throat> that there is this capacity to impart meaning to our experiences. This is how the mind works. This is what drives us through every day of our lives. And all of this is based on ideas of duality, limitation, and relativity. We are not experiencing the divine reality in itself. 
we are experiencing its effects, the way it has expressed itself. And so to approach the divine, which is unknowable to our minds, we resort to symbols, symbols of the divine. Every religion abounds in various symbols of the divine that embody different truths about who God is and who we are and how we relate to the divine. But the thing is the symbols can only suggest. And when we experience the symbols, we are not experiencing in itself that which they represent. There is no symbol big enough to hold what it actually signifies. There are different types of symbols. We come across them throughout our lives in every level of experience. Some of them are subtle. Some of them are gross. So the subtlest form of symbol is the mantra. The mantra that you receive from the guru upon initiation is the name of God, the name of your chosen ideal, that aspect of the divine which you are approaching. Now, this is the most sacred of all your possessions, the mantra you have received from your guru, and you're told not to tell it to anyone else. The mantra, many people will argue, is not a symbol at all. It is the actual divine presence. This is divinity embodied in sound. This is a very commonly held view in Indian teaching. Next, there is the yantra. And you've all seen yantras. These are these geometrical diagrams, which are graphic symbols of a deity's particular attributes, energies, qualities, and functions. Then there is another type of mantra, which is called dhyana mantra. And this is an elaborate description of a particular deity. So a dhyana mantra will say, I bow to this or that deity who is seated on the lotus, whose complexion is this or that color, who has X number of hands, who is holding these implements, who is gracious, whose mood is such and such. And so these dhyana mantras become a means for us to visualize in our meditations that chosen deity. We can visualize the deity within us in the heart by remembering the words and the descriptions of the dhyana mantra. And in turn, the dhyana mantras serve as the inspiration for artists who paint pictures of the deities, who create beautiful sculptures and murtis that we see in the temples. The murti, or the painting, is a physical embodiment of the information contained in the dhyana mantra. So all of these are symbols of the divine. Now we can learn to read these symbols. We can learn to read an image just as we learn to read the words on a book, on the pages of a book. But there's a difference. Because when we are resorting to words, when we're reading something in a book, our mind is going through a whole process of language and discursive thought and reasoning and gradual unfoldment. When we learn to read a symbol, when we have been told what a symbol means, when we've thought about it a lot, when we've internalized it, then From that time on, when we see the symbol, our mind bypasses all of the language, all of the discursive thought. We see the symbol, and immediately we recognize what it means. There's that instantaneous recognition of that meaning in our minds. So this is a more direct way of knowing. So this is very important value of symbols in spiritual life. Now, when we approach any of these images, we have to have the proper attitude. 
we have to remember that an image is a symbol. It is not the reality that it represents. The symbol cannot contain that which, rep which it represents because the meaning of the symbol is infinitely greater and grander and nobler than the symbol itself. So we have to remember that these symbols are means to an end. They are not an end in themselves. <clears throat> they are also a way that we can approach the infinite through the finite because every symbol is finite. The symbols themselves embody truths, and these truths can be for us a source of guidance, an inspiration, self-betterment, and eventually of transformation. Now, the nature of symbols is that a great many of them have more than one meaning. A symbol can have a different meaning according to the context in which we view it. So a particular object seen in the hand of one deity, for example, may mean something slightly different from that same object if it is held by another deity. So context is something we have to take into account here with the meaning of symbols. Next, there is the idea that a symbol not only has more than one meaning, but that a symbol has one meaning but many, many different layers of depth. So according to our own capacity, how deeply can we penetrate the meaning of that symbol? This is the wonderful thing about symbols. The more we think about them, the more we progress in our spiritual lives, the deeper and the more meaningful these symbols will become. Because as our awareness expands and our insight deepens, these symbols will reveal more and more to us. So it's an unending process. There's always this sense of joy and discovery. <clears throat> also, a symbol is powerful and it is a symbol because it is charged with possibility. Because there's always the possibility that it can reveal something new and fresh that we never thought about before. Something that can be very meaningful and useful in our own spiritual practice. Now, what is the divine and who are the deities? <clears throat> I think we've pretty much answered already what is the divine. The divine is Brahman, that supreme reality, that light of pure consciousness that illuminates all of our experience. The divine has no qualities. The ultimate Brahman is called Nirguna, unconditioned, without qualities. We take the same Brahman in the Vedanta philosophy and we say it can become conditioned. We can call it Saguna Brahman, Brahman with qualities. Brahman with qualities is the formless God. I mean, the, the God is still a formless God, but it's a personal God. We generally think of Brahman without qualities as an impersonal principle. Brahman with qualities becomes the personal God, but still formless. But still, this God has attributes such as omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, loving kindness. And all of these are qualities that we attribute to the divine, to what we would call God. Now, the formless also has the capacity to assume form. And therefore, we find that we have all of these different powers and aspects and functions of this divine reality embodied as deities, as gods and goddess with forms and qualities. Now here, we must um, <clears throat> make sure we understand this properly. Uh, the Hindu religion is not a religion that would be called polytheistic. 
There's not a god of rain to whom we pray specifically a time of drought. There's not a separate goddess of the earth whom we pray to for an abundant harvest. There's not even this god of the sun to whom we pray to for enlightenment and illumination. Early on, the Rig Veda says, no matter what you call this god, truth is one. Reality is one. There is one divine reality, one supreme being, no matter what we call it and no matter what functions we attribute to it. But this idea still lingered on, even in ancient times, that there were many gods and goddesses. So we find a wonderful incident in the Brihadaranyakopanishad. This took place during the great debate at the court of King Janaka, where, King, where um, the seer, Yagnavalkya, debated all of these great holy men and women who were so wise. And at one point in the debate, somebody named Shakalya got up and he said to Yagnavalka, tell me, sir, how many gods are there? And Yagnavalka, in answer, recited this invocation that named three and three hundred and three and three thousand gods. And then Shakalya said, tell me, Yagnavalka, how many gods are there? And Yagnavalka said, six. And Shakalya posed the question again. And this time Yagnavalka said three. Again, two. Again, well, one and a half. Again, one. And then Yagnavalka said, that one is Brahman, which is called that. Of that, he continued, nothing can truly be said. But it is this one that expands into all the rest. The one God assumes countless names, forms, activities, and powers. And people, seeing the multiplicity, mistakenly think that there are many gods and goddesses. At the end of the dialogue, this great Rishi, Yagnivalkya, summed up that supreme, summed this all up. He said, the supreme being, the Purusha, who is to be known from the Upanishads, projects everything out of itself and again withdraws it, but ever remains unchanging, ever remaining the transcendental one. From out of the formless proceeds every form. Now there's another example we can take from modern life to clarify this <clears throat> idea that God is one in a way that Yagnavalkya could not have conceived of. Now I call this the snapshot theory. We're talking about the sublime matter of God being one. And somehow the snapshot theory sounds kind of not really dignified enough. So if we put this word into Sanskrit and call it kshanapratimavada, now we've got something to go with. So what is this kshanapratimavada, this snapshot theory? Vada means doctrine or theory. Pratima means any kind of image or representation. Kshana refers to an instant in time. Now what is a photograph? A photograph is a moment in time frozen in the form of an image. You can look at the same photo year after year, and apart from any possible fading, it remains unchanged. So, Let's imagine you take out the family photos one day 
and you see a picture of your mother as an infant. And then you see some more pictures of her. She's a little girl. She's cuddling her teddy bear. She's out playing in the yard. Then you see her as an adolescent, as a young woman, as a young mother holding you in her arms. There are more pictures of her as a mature woman, and possibly you have pictures of her also as an elderly woman. You can look at all of these pictures, infant, child, adolescent, young woman, young mother, mature woman, elderly woman. And yet there is no doubt in your mind for one minute that that person in those photos is your mother, one and the same person. Now look at them again. Look at what she's wearing. As an infant, she's dressed one way. As a child, another way. As a mature woman, she's dressed another way. According to the occasion, it will be either informal or formal. Then you look at what she's doing. What's she holding? She's in the kitchen. She's got an egg beater in her hand or maybe a knife. Or she's out in the garden with a rake. Then you look at her hairstyle. Sometimes her hair is one way, sometimes another, depending on her age and the style that was appropriate at the time. So there's this great range of diversity to these pictures of your mother, how she looks, what she's wearing, what she's doing, what tools or toys or games or things she's involved with. Is she riding a tricycle? Is she behind the wheel of a car? And yet, in every one of these pictures, no matter what she's doing, there's no doubt in your mind that this is a picture of your mother. And so it's exactly the same way with all of these gods and goddesses. Every one of the gods and goddesses is an instantaneous revelation of the divine in a particular form, doing a particular thing, having a particular meaning, a particular function. This is what this snapshot theory is all about. The highest truth is that reality is one. The mind cannot comprehend this. But the reality can assume all these different names and forms, things we can wrap our minds around, things that we can understand, things that will help us taking us step by step ever closer to this ultimate reality. Now, why do we approach the divine? That's another question. Many early theorists of religion will say that originally, uh, people lived as hunters and gatherers. And so they were concerned about whether or not they would find game out in the forest. They were concerned about what the weather would be like. They were concerned about protection from anything that could do them harm. Later, people settled down into an agricultural mode of existence. And then they were concerned about the rainfall and the fertility of the soil and whether or not there would be crops. And once there were crops, then there would be abundance. And when there was abundance, there was security. So religion became very much involved with these ideas of our prosperity, our security, our survival, and our well-being. And then there is also looming on the horizon death. Death is inevitable. All things come to an end, including our lives. And so religion became involved with these ideas of immortality. We find even in the earliest religions, in ancient burials, for example, evidence of funerary practices and ideas that, yes, the soul somehow survives the death of this body. Some religions developed this idea also of an afterlife with rewards or punishments. 
And this persists in some religions to this day. Uh, just the other day on TV, there was a um, show that I saw, and one of the shots was the exterior of a church with one of those signboards outside of it. And the message on the signboard was, go to church or go to hell. <laughs> and some people, yes, this is their idea of religion. Fortunately, it's not ours. <clears throat> the true essence or quest, the true essence of the spiritual quest for us is, again, somehow to relate to something bigger than ourselves. And why do we do this? Not because somebody told us to. Not because somebody told us there's Big Daddy or Big Mommy in the sky who's going to punish us if, we're not be, if we don't behave. We engage in the spiritual quest because sometime, somehow, we had some intuition of something grander and bigger and nobler than what we experience in our everyday existence. Something that we had had a momentary flash of. And that draws us. It sets us on this path. It sets these wheels in motion. The path may be the bhakti marga, the path of devotion, in which we want to relate to that something grander. It may be the path of knowledge, in which we want to become that something grander, to realize that that is our true nature. In either case, the spiritual path is something that involves us, that becomes the center of our existence. Now, to aid us, we have this language of symbols. <clears throat> Let's begin with the idea of something that attracts us. Something that attracts us pretty much universally is this idea of beauty. There's probably not a person alive who is not attracted in some way to something that is considered beautiful. Now, in Indian and in all Asian philosophies, a universal symbol of beauty is the lotus. The lotus is this wonderful flower. And we find it in Buddhist traditions. We find it throughout India. We find it throughout Asia. <clears throat> it's really a holy, iconic symbol. Now, in Indian tradition, every part of the lotus plant is meaningful. We find, for example, the stem. The stem rises up out of the water. Water, according to the Vedas, is the source of all life. And we know from observation that you can't put a dry seed in dry soil and expect it to germinate. Nothing's going to happen until that soil is watered. So water is this element that allows life to arise. <clears throat> now, the lotus flower, the stem comes up out of the water. Eventually, a flower blooms. And this flower is absolutely beautiful. And then we think the roots of the plant are in the mud. The flower above is absolutely taintless. So the lotus is a symbol of purity, of spiritual purity. It's a symbol of life, of abundance, and purity. <clears throat> now let's look at the leaf. If you've ever been to a botanic garden or someplace where lotuses are growing, you can scoop up a handful of water and pour it on the leaf. And an amazing thing happens. The water beads up immediately and runs off the leaf. And so the lotus is also the symbol of serene detachment. The lotus cannot be defiled. The water runs right off of it. And so if we compare this to our mind, 
When we think of a mind that is absorbed in contemplation of the divine, it is not going to be affected by the cares of the world around it. And so in this way, again, the lotus leaf is this wonderful symbol of detachment and purity of thinking, purity of mind. There's one other meaning attached to the lotus, and that is the meaning of sovereignty. Very often we find a god or a goddess shown seated on a lotus as a throne. And this is the symbol of divine authority or sovereignty. The deity who is most closely associated with the lotus is Lakshmi. And in fact, one of her names is Kamala, and Kamala is another word for lotus. Lakshmi ordinarily has four hands, and in two of them she's holding beautiful lotus blossoms. She's also seated on a lotus throne. So all of these meanings of lotus, the purity, the sovereignty, the uh, taintlessness, the abundance, the life, the wealth, the joy, the happiness, all of these are embodied in Lakshmi. Now, Lakshmi is the goddess who gives us wealth, abundance, and so forth for ourselves and for others. But besides material wealth, there are non-material or higher forms of wealth. And one of the highest forms of wealth is virtue. So if we cultivate this highest treasure that Lakshmi has to offer, this treasure of virtue or dharma, this leads to spiritual self-mastery. And spiritual self-mastery is the highest form of autonomy. So this is what Lakshmi has to offer us. Very often we find the Divine Mother also dripping with jewels. And there's an aspect of the Mother called Tripura Sundari. Her name means she who is beautiful in the three worlds. We see beauty all around us. But Tripura Sundari should also represent for us this state of awareness of seeing the divine presence everywhere. The world is beautiful because it is pervaded by this divine presence. Tripur Sundari is therefore the divine mother as beauty personified. This whole world is her beauty. There is also associated with her the bow and arrows. Ordinarily the bow represents the manas. This is the part of our mind with which we perceive the world around us. And the five arrows represent the senses. They're shot out from the mind. The faculties of hearing, taste, touch, um, smell, and... Hearing, taste, touch, sight, and smell. So we know the world through the senses, and the information comes back to the mind. Now, the fact that Tripura Sundari has a bow, her bow is different from any other deity's bow, and her arrows are different also. Her bow is made of sugar cane, and her arrows are made of flowers. The message here is that the creation is good. It should be juicy and flavorful and fragrant and beautiful to be enjoyed. So this is something that this image of Tripura Sundari, the Divine Mother, tells us. Now, this is not a license to eat, drink, and be merry. Because we have to remember that somehow the divine source from which all of this has come is immeasurably greater and more wonderful than anything that we know in the here and now. So a 
great commentator named Bhaskara Raya took this name, Tripura Sundari, and he analyzed it in a different way. Instead of meaning she who is beautiful in the three worlds, he took the name to mean she who is beautiful before the three worlds. She is the source from which all of this has come. That source, which in itself is this transcendental beauty to which we are all aspiring. <clears throat> now I mentioned the message was not eat, drink, and be merry. So we have the idea that we have to be discerning in everything that we do in our life's experiences. And so we have several objects associated with deities that illustrate this principle of discernment called viveka in Sanskrit. Uh, it's usually the sword. And this sword is called jnana sword of knowledge. Because viveka is this mental capacity or mental empowerment to cut away everything that is false and misleading. <clears throat> we mistake the appearance for the reality. We mistake what is impermanent for the permanent. And as a result of this, we cling to things which you cannot cling to. And we experience suffering in our lives. But with this sword of knowledge, this jnana kadga, we can cut away all those false ideas and therefore be empowered to see reality as it is. <clears throat> we find this sword very often with Kali. We find it also with a closely related aspect named Tara. Tara is very close to Kali. In fact, the poet Ram Prasad used to use the two names interchangeably. And it's like two snapshots of your mother taken minutes apart, where suddenly, you know, the position's slightly different, maybe she's holding something different, but basically they're very, very close. Besides the sword, Tara holds a pair of scissors. And the scissors also have the capacity to cut. But whereas the sword slashes through the appearance to reveal the reality, the scissors are used to snip away at all of our worldly attachments. There's a third symbol, which is the winnowing basket. This is used in India to separate the chaff from the grain. You bounce the grain around, and then the chaff separates and the wind blows it away. And what you have left is the grain, which is what you want. So Dumavati is the divine mother as a widow. Now, she represents the fact that we all face in our lives loss, bereavement, and so forth. <clears throat> and so, she is sitting in a cart which is not hooked up to anything. In other words, her life is going nowhere. When we experience great loss, sometimes we feel that our life is going nowhere. It's lost all meaning. We're stuck. We're stranded. But yet, look at Dumavati in her cart. In one hand, in her right hand, she's holding this bowl of flames. And that represents the fact that nothing lasts forever. Everything burns up in this fire of cosmic dissolution. On the other hand, she's holding the winnowing basket. She's telling us, yes, there is impermanence to life. Recognize it. And then apply your discernment, your viveka, and realize how to deal with the impermanence of life. And in this lies true empowerment so even though the cart of our life may be stranded, there is Dumavati with these two symbols of empowerment, the knowledge that all things are impermanent except the divine reality, and the sense of discrimination, viveka, by which we can discern that and cultivate it in our spiritual life. Now there's a vast array of symbols. Uh, deities have multiple arms, hands, heads, eyes. 
They wear different clothes. They have their hair in different styles. There are different colors associated with, associated with them, different postures, different mudras or hand gestures. They're associated with different animals or birds. <clears throat> Some of these are cosmic symbols, all about the emanation of the universe, its, its maintenance, and its dissolution. Others are symbols that relate to our own internal states of awareness and our own capacities along the spiritual path. <clears throat> the multiple features in a deity represent powers that lie beyond our limited human range. So for example, if we see a, head with several, a deity with several heads looking in different directions, that means the divine can see all around. And if we see a divinity with three eyes, the third eye positioned vertically between the eyebrows, this means the divinity has the ability to see past, present, and future. So these are signs of omniscience, which is one of the divine qualities, all-knowingness. Arms, multiple arms. Durga has 10 of them. Why? They represent the four cardinal directions, east, south, west, north. They represent the four cross quarters in between and the points above and below. In other words, the totality of the universe. Durga represents, her arms represent omnipresence. There is no place where the divine is not. Everywhere there is the divine. Now for somebody on the bhakti marga, the path of knowledge, or the path of devotion, this means that the divine is all around you. Everything should be a reminder of your divine beloved. Moreover, you can take that ideal and enshrine it within the lotus of your heart so that no matter where you go, no matter what you do, no matter what you're doing, the divine is present there with you. You are never apart from the divine. Now, with Lakshmi, we find that she has four hands <clears throat> and four arms, and this has a different meaning. This means that she has the ability to grant the four purusharthas, the four aims of life, dharma, artha, kama, moksha. So with Lakshmi, through her grace, we can experience this treasure of virtue. We can experience the material comforts we need to live our life, the legitimate pleasures, but also this great and final gift of liberation. <clears throat> now, because there are hands with, associated with deities, hands hold objects and hands engage in activities. And so we have many different types of implements, weapons of war, tools, musical instruments, flowers, prayer beads, and so on. Weapons of war are usually associated with the fiercer aspects of divinity. But what is the real purpose? They are for our own protection. The war is this battle within. This is a spiritual battle against our own lower tendencies. And the divinities represent, and their powers, represent our own internal powers to combat all of these forces of ignorance or darkness, whatever it is that keeps us in bondage. So the battle axe in the hand of a deity is the ability to destroy ignorance. The mace is the ability to destroy unrighteousness, a dharma. The shield is a sign of protection. The spear is insight. And there's a wonderful example of the spear. When Durga battled with Mahishasura, the buffalo demon, he kept shifting his shape. And no matter what she did, he evaded her death blows until finally she resolved that she was going to put an end to this. So she took her spear, representing insight, and she penetrated his shoulder and pinned him down. And then she was, he revealed himself in his true demon form, and she beheaded him with the sword of knowledge. 
What this means is that we have within our own minds this capacity to penetrate, to have the insight, to look at our problems, and to find out what is the real cause behind them. And once we have that penetrating insight, we have the power to take the sword of knowledge and to deal with that difficulty once and for all. So all of these symbols convey these sublime spiritual messages of empowerment. Peaceful implements also. Very often we find a deity holding a goad and a noose. The goad was a type of hook used by elephant drivers. And in the hands of a deity, it is his power to nudge the devotee in the right direction, back Godward. The noose, on the other hand, captivates. And this could be positive or negative. Tripura Sundari, this goddess who is so beautiful, her noose captivates us with the beauty of this world. And again, we think of Sri Ramakrishna when he said, it is mother who captivates us and mother who again sets us free. As avidya maya, she bedazzles us and keeps us in this ignorance and bondage. And then as vidya maya, she shows us the way back to liberation. We also find some positive symbols, a trio of them, the book, the Japamala, and the Kamandalu. This is a book signifying the Vedas, the Mala that we use when we do Japa, and the Kamandala, the ascetic's water pot. These are usually associated with Brahma, with Saraswati, his consort, and with Brahmani, his Shakti. So we find the story in the Devi Mahatmya again, where the seven little mothers, these fierce forms, of the gods, their shaktis, are battling all these demons. <clears throat> and Brahmani is one of them, but she is the least fierce of all of them. And she goes about the battlefield, sprinkling the demons with drops of water from her kamandalu, holy water. So think in our lives, whenever we have felt an urge to do something that we know is not the right thing to do, and we're about to do it, and then suddenly there's this something within us, something higher and nobler, tells us, no. Uh-uh, this isn't the way. And very gently dissuades us from doing what we know to be wrong. This is the power of those drops of water from Brahmani's Kamandalu. We find sound-producing objects. And sound is very important in all Indian philosophy because sound is really a symbol of creative power, the divine power to manifest the universe, to make this whole creation. So with Saraswati, we find her playing the Veena, and this also represents the fact that in addition to logic, there are these noble sentiments of the heart, the temper, the coldness of logic. Durga rings a bell on the battlefield. This clear ringing of the bell puts to flight all those lower tendencies in our minds. A conch, its noble, huge tone, is a call to spiritual awakening. And of course, the supreme symbol of beauty is Krishna's flute. Krishna plays the flute, and the beautiful soft music beckons us back to this longing for union with our higher nature. Krishna's flute, its sweet music, creates an unquenchable longing for the divine beloved that only union with the infinite can satisfy. The matter of style is something else. Very often we'll look at a, devotee, or a deity such as Kali, or Bhairavi, and we think, oh my goodness, she's having a bad hair day. But what does this mean? This loose hair is a sign of utter freedom. Kali represents the absolute. She is one without a second. There's nothing to constrain her. 
On the other hand, Tara, who is very close to Kali, wears her hair very carefully coiffed in this top knot. Shiva, sitting in meditation, also has this top knot, which is so neat. This signifies control, mastery over the mind. This is the state of yoga. So both of these are very positive symbols. Clothing or absence of clothing. Kali is naked. This means nothing can contain her because she is infinite. Color also is very important. So we take Kali's dark skin. Again, this signifies her infinitude. You look at the night sky, and it just seems to go on forever and ever. It's this deep, deep blue. You look at the blue waters of the ocean, it seems to go on forever. But Sri Ramakrishna said, look at both of them. When you get close up to space, there's no color. You go to the seashore, scoop up a handful of water, it's colorless. In the same way, the closer you come to the divine reality, the closer you approach the Mother Kali, you see she is without color, without qualities. She is nirguna chaitanya, unconditioned consciousness, the pure radiance of eternity. If we find a deity with red complexion, this represents the guna of rajas. Oh, if the dark uh, complexion also represents the guna of tamas, the ability of Kali to veil her true nature so that we perceive this whole world of name and form and multiplicity. A deity with the red skin represents rajas, constant motion. The world is constantly in motion, ever-changing. And so a deity such as Bhuvaneshwari, which represents this world of the here and now, has this reddish skin. And the white represents sattva, clarity of consciousness, the self-revealing capacity of consciousness, the fact that we can know the divine. And we see this on Saraswati, whose clear white complexion glows beautifully like the radiance of the moonlight at the edge of a cloud. It signifies knowledge and illumination. There's posture in mudra. Very briefly, if a deity does this, this is the Abhoya Mudra. Be not afraid, there's nothing to fear. I am here to protect you. Or this, ask a boon, whatever you want shall be yours. Or this, this is a state of deep, deep meditation. This betokens wisdom. This also means wisdom. And when the deity holds out the hand like this, it means I have instruction to impart. <clears throat> now we will conclude by um, describing very briefly two of the major icons within the Hindu religion so that you get an idea of these symbols as they all come together in a single place. One of them is Shiva Nataraja, the other one is Dakshina Kali. Shiva Nataraja is very popular, especially in southern India. He's the lord of the dance, and you've all seen the images of Shiva Nataraja dancing in the circle of flames. <clears throat> okay, the circle of flames is this divine radiance that comes out of Shiva, and Shiva is at the center of this divine radiance. Shiva is the reality at the heart of everything, at the heart of the cosmos. In his upper right hand, he's holding a small hourglass-shaped drum, the Damaru, and he's beating out this rhythm of existence. The whole cosmos unfolds to this dance of creation. And it is rhythmic. It means there's order. Cosmos, the, the cosmos proceeds out of the unmanifest in a particular orderly way according to all of these cosmic principles. They constitute the universe and how it works. They constitute the human mind, the human being, this mind-body complex, how it works. All of this divine order, divine intelligence. In this hand, there's a big flame, 
signifying all of this shall come to an end. What I have created and manifested, I can also dissolve. Cosmic dissolution. Next, Siva has two other hands, which are not cosmic hands at all, but they pertain to the here and now. So, with his lower right hand, he's saying, again, be not afraid. And then his left hand is pointing downward to his left foot, which is upraised very gracefully. And this is saying, take refuge in me. So we can turn to God, we can turn to Shiva, we can turn to the divine whenever we are in trouble or just out of love for the divine. It doesn't matter what. This is this appeal. Take refuge in the Lord. And finally, Shiva is standing upon this little demon called Apasmata Purusha. And this signifies our state of ignorance. The fact that in our present state of awareness, things are so likely to upset us get us off balance. And here's Shiva, beautifully poised on this demon of ignorance. So Shiva, the divine light, this knowledge of who I am, is what creates this utter serenity, peace, and fulfillment. Uh, This is a symbol um, that goes along with a mantra, Shivoham, I am Shiva, which I think you've all heard. And this means the same as the Upanishadic Mahavakya, Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman. Finally, there's Dakshinakali. This is a benevolent form of the mother. She's beautiful, she's young. And we find her standing on the inert body of Shiva. Shiva represents absolute consciousness, nirguna brahman, consciousness at rest, a state of being in its own perfection without any manifestation. Kali, in this case, is dancing the dance of creation upon Shiva's breast. He's looking up at her adoringly because Shiva and Shakti are in fact one. Consciousness and its power are a single reality. We cannot separate consciousness from the power of consciousness. Sri Ramakrishna said, when it is at rest, I call it Brahman. It is like an ocean where there are no waves. When it is in motion, we find waves in the water. I call that Kali or Shakti. But he said, in either case, it is one and the same reality, whether at rest or moving. It is one. So Kali, again, has four hands. She's making the gesture of boon giving and fearlessness. She wields the sword of knowledge to tell us that we have the power to cut through and see the reality behind appearances. And then the sword is all bloodied because it has just severed the head of a demon, which she's dangling like a trophy in her lower left hand. And that demon represents the human ego, our whole source of limitation and ignorance. Everything that we experience in this life, we experience filtered through this ego, this sense that I am a separate individual, I am a separate being. And because I exist in this ocean of otherness, there are often problems, perceived threats, conflicts of interest, and so forth. So our greater identity is not this limited ego, the knowledge that Kali imparts with her sword severs that. And once we have destroyed this sense of separate selfhood, we realize our greater selfhood, the reality behind the appearance, the reality that the self is infinite, immortal. It is that Brahman that we hear of in the Upanishads, that light that shines of its own accord and illumines all else. So this is another one of the messages of Kali. 
There are many more symbols, but we've run out of time, so um, we'll leave it with that. Symbols are an avenue to the supreme reality. We can employ them in our spiritual lives every day. And in this wonderful symbol of Kali, we see that from the absolute to the relative, and again, back from the relative to the absolute, Kali represents this power of transformation. For us who wrongly think ourselves to be mere mortals, she holds out the promise of transformation from the human to the divine. Om Purnamada Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudachate Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnamevavashishate Om Filled full with Brahman are the things we see. Filled full with Brahman are the things we see not. From out of Brahman floweth all that is. From Brahman floweth all. Yet is it still the same. Om Shanti 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 Peace, peace, peace.